join Aaron and his guests as they spin yarns and tell tales from the tap room. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tales of the Tap Room, episode two. Guys, I am here with Kyle and Lullaby, and you might know who their characters are, but you might not. So they're going to introduce themselves, but today they're going to do it as themselves. So you're going to introduce yourself. You're going to tell us the character you play on Valiant Odyssey, and then after that, you're going to tell us which Hogwarts house your character would be in. I got a five, so I go first. All right, my name's Aaron, and I play the Dungeon Master, and I am stuck telling you what house I'm actually in because I don't play a character. So I guess I'm in Slytherin. See, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I, neither do I. Yeah. But I did the, I did the legit test. Like, uh, when I was younger, I did it, and I was Gryffindor. And then after that, I did it, like, last year because at my work, the people that I work with was like, do the test. So I did it, and I was Slytherin. I feel like there's yeah. an unfair stigma by just being going into Slytherin simply because of the Harry Potter lore. I feel like there's more to Slytherin than what, we, what we've been exposed to. Nah, Salazar Slytherin was a bit of a dick, bro. Like, straight up. In the movies, right, when Voldemort and the Death Eaters are, like, attacking the castle, McGonagall's the acting principal and she goes, all right, Slytherins, lock them in the dungeon, everybody else into the Great Hall. I'm like, that, these are kids, man. Come on. I'm still shitty that Salazar Slytherin never buried the hatchet with the rest of the fucking Hogwarts uh, like house founders. Like, uh, uh, you know, just chucked a giant snake in the basement and just went, oh, yeah, just uh, kill random kids whenever you want and turn them to stone, mate. That's what Skywalker did. <laughs> <laughs> Not right. the younglings. <laughs> Master Skywalker, what can we do? <laughs> Okay, well, I'm Lullaby and I play Key. How are we going? Uh, so, Key would probably end up in a house. Correction, he- you played Key. Yeah, suck it, you died. You're the, so crap at d The death PTSD is just kicking in. I'm the like, choppers well, are going over. Fortunate son played. I'm just going to assume everyone that's listening that the Patreon is up to date. So, yes, yes he 100%. is dead and he died by saving Jesse's life. Yeah, he did, because he's a loser. <laughs> So. These two are actually really good friends, I promise you. <laughs> That's the truth. Um, so, yes, I, I played Key. He did. And um, I'm going to go with, like, I did a test too, and I ended up in Hufflepuff. And it's safe to say Key would not be in Hufflepuff. But, but my logic is Key would end up in a house that he doesn't belong in. <laughs> I reckon Key would be in Ravenclaw, honestly. No, I think that if somebody put Key into a box, Key would make it his mission to not fit in that box. Yeah, that's fair, that's <laughs> fair, that's fair. I, I, I think the sorting hat would put Key in Gryffindor and everyone would be looking at Key and including himself going, what the hell am I doing here? But there is obviously something about Key that himself and other people don't see except for special people as per the campaign has sort of sort of revealed sort of special characters within the campaign even though key has sort of ignored it he would probably belong in gryffindor valid assumption um when i was thinking about this i was like i reckon he would be in ravenclaw just because he's very that's exactly what i thought he's kind of intelligent you know yeah. he, he's slightly sick. aloof yeah yeah it's yeah. not that intelligent 
It's just his sympathetic divisions put him into a fight or flight sort of response. So he's just sort of, uh, I'll do this, I'll do that. And sometimes it works out. Mm. Most times no, it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And last but not least, just we or Kyle. Yeah, g'day. My name's Kyle. This and is I... his actual accent. You guys hear the sultry French, but uh, we're stuck with this for the rest of his life. Yeah, I play Jess Suisse Undewey. <laughs> <laughs> Yuck. Yeah, my name's Kyle. I play Jess Suisse Undewey. Uh, and I, oh, it's a hard one. I'd honestly say for Jess Suisse, probably Ravenclaw. Like. You, you pick Gryffindor? Well, nah. I pick Gryffindor for you, but also for Jusui. Nah, see, I think the blue would, would look good on Jusui. And I, I seriously think that would be a factor in it. I reckon like, the sorting hat would take that into consideration. Yeah, take your choice. No. It's just like, you're in Gryffindor. And then I you're agree. just like, uh, actually, red looks shit on me. Like, me personally, obviously, like, well, people think Slytherin, but I'm, I'm definitely a Gryffindor. Maybe, you know, I wouldn't be surprised... If I was a Hufflepuff puff pass, um, but uh, yeah, mostly bleed red and gold through and through. I just want to weigh in real quickly. Which house is the vainest? Which house is the vainest? I, think I have that, a feeling I think it's Slytherin. No, I think Vanity like is Slytherin. Is, is Slytherin. They are definitely the classiest looking guys. But also, the- I think Vanity is right across the board in all of them, dude. Like you got to remember, you got the um, oh, uh, the the. Patel sisters in Gryffindor, yeah, they were body. pretty fuck. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty fucking vain in the books, man. Mm. So, you know, and then you've got oh, there's got to be Hufflepuff groupies. Like, hundred percent, they all loved Cedric. Yeah, dude. I mean, Cedric may not have been vain, but best Batman, by the way. Who? Robert Pattinson. Our Pats. Michael Keaton. Oh well, yeah. That's well, a big call, dude. He's my favorite Batman. Look. Our Pats is a good Batman, don't get me wrong, but one movie cannot a best Batman make, man. Absolutely. Say that no. to George Clooney. So that's... Oi, look, don't even start with me. George Clooney is, is my actual favourite Batman. <laughs> Fuck, I love the nipple suit. Fuck off. We'll unpack that <laughs> in another episode of Tales of Tap Room. Tune in for that. Fucking hell. I'm flabbergasted. What about George Clooney? Nah, man, it your was, choice. Yeah. It was fucking. It was so good. I think I was like, what, eleven when it came out or some shit. It was like the campest, just so much fun. I think it was ninety nine because oh one was. The I think it was ninety nine. Yeah, I was like nine years. It was that really formative age before I got hair on my balls. Yeah, yeah, that one that really defines the rest of your life. In saying that, he defeated his own logic by saying you can't choose a Batman off one movie, which is exactly what he did. No, 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 no. You said that Arpats was the greatest Batman of all time. I did not say that. I said he's my favorite. Oh, okay. Well, just shut up. <laughs> we'll, we'll cut the last five minutes because he's allowed to have it. <laughs> all right, let's get into this. So, um, guys, we're having a side quest while we review these two episodes. We're reviewing episode three and four of season two. The side quest we're doing is called phrasing, and you have all been given two phrases that you have to silently sneak into conversation without the other people knowing. If you drop one of your phrases, you will hear this sound. And then at the end, we'll see if we can guess what each other's phrases were. All right, so the episodes that we are reviewing, one is called The Shadow of Megaris, and the other one is called On the Edge of a Knife, and they both feature... 
teams that you were a part of, the Crown Killers. What happens in these episodes? Well, I'll tell you what happens in these episodes. With the pendants of non-detection within arm's reach, the Crown Killers begin their stealthy approach towards Megaris, hoping to rid the minds of Jusui and Key of Delnak's influence. After encountering some military resistance in the form of invading Heraclesian leagues, the party must use brains and tactical brawn to fulfill their goal together or die. Bullshit! We paid off some guards and snuck in. Tactical brawn with money. Can I give my synopsis on the t- on that episode? Yes, after I give you this one. With the dawning tithe infiltrated, I'm sure nobody attests to that, the Sun Arbiter located and the villagers rescued, the only thing that stands in the way of the Crown Killer's escape from Megaris is the cleaver of Corilla. Have Valiant Odyssey's favourite rascals finally met their match? Yeah, it wasn't a match. It was. Well, it was. It was. I've been thinking about it after doing some reviewing. Um, and like uh, the on the edge of a knife, that was the first episode that we all realised that, oh shit, we can't actually die. Like, <laughs> before that, like we just sailed through fucking everything. I, w- I would like to say, I would like to say that you say you sailed through everything, but you guys as a team, you are quite good at two things. One, planning a heist and two, doing a whole lot of fucking damage in the first round in case anything goes wrong. Because whilst you were infiltrating the Dawning Tithe in episode Three, the Shadows of Megaris. Yeah, we what we took out two and a Drake, like yeah. before the battle even started. Yeah, and then you hid their bodies, and before that even, you snuck up and bribed guards. It was just like you you ticked every heist box. Like Daniel Craig should have been a supporting actor in this. I was, I don't know about Key, but I was just so stoked when we, we were all sitting around the table and those guards were there in Shadow of Megaris, and like because we'd only just started stealthing. The Drake was right above us. There was three of them. And we were sort of, we were pretty cocky and we were like, uh, we could take them. We could take. And then I just had a thought and I was just like, hey, can we give them money to fuck off? Mm, mm. And I remember it was like, literally, we just stood there and went, can we, yeah, we can bribe them, right? Mm-hmm. And then we just threw them gold and they fucked off. It yep. was great. In my DM notes, it actually said, I was just like, present the crown killers with one Drake and one guard. See if they fight him. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, there was a little asterisk that said, bring two in later. So, yeah, lucky. No, that was, that was hella lucky. How much did we give them? Like 22 gold or See, something. they like don't that. get paid enough, these guys. No, nah, they really don't. They really don't. What like, is, what's a Drake going to do with 22 gold? Oh, no, but the rider will buy him like a, a steak or something. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Go to IMC and cook it real nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah. Um. You guys actually encountered a very, very important NPC in episode three as well, in the form of Agram, 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 and also Junus. Is it oh, Junus or Judith? Fuck's sake! It's Junus. Junus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Care to comment? Yeah, she's. Um, I think she's been hit in the head a few times. <laughs> well, there was some time where Drew was left with her, so he could have cast any spell. No, I don't think Drew cast the spell. I think she's just, uh, look, when you think about it, she is a, a, war su- like a war survivor, right? She is, but she's also seen very little of the world. So her appeal towards Drew on my end was just curiosity. Like, it was a lot of curiosity. Oh, see, I was going more, you know, she's seen a lot of war. The only real nice people that she's met 
are like the priest, Agram, and maybe another dude, and like maybe her family, and her family's all dead now. So Drew comes up and so yeah, and he's just coming in. He's like, she has a thrown up on me. That's exactly so, what. He did. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, and I think she's just like, oh, he's actually nice and not trying to, you know, murder everybody I know and take all my stuff. Yeah, and she was definitely curious in the conversation, but I just love how um, Michael in that situation, he literally took an NPC moment and made it define his character for the rest of the season. Like, he's just, everybody he meets now, he's so proud to tell them that he has a girlfriend and this is just everything that he's sort of wanted in a character. Like, it was amazing to see that that sort of little spark moment there fed into lots of other things that happened down the track and that actually happened with you two as well like there was a lot of um, let's say tension building moments between Jesui and Key yeah but you know how that happened right well this is the podcast to reveal it on oh that's like Key and Key and Jesui's whole relationship was basically built around Lullaby and I drinking on the apartment balcony at like <laughs> two in the morning after town going you know what we should do we Beat should each not other like each other yeah. like but that kind of party um tension hadn't been seen before in the podcast like there had not really been disagreements and it's hard to do that in D and have it be actually productive as opposed to it being a massive fucking table problem that DMs have to deal with. Well, this is why I really hope that we end up um, getting to review those episodes ourselves because um, I'd love to talk talk about that because um, how how the tension started was actually within the narrative. What what Kyle just talked about was uh, was just something how we wanted to deal with the current narrative. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to uh, break that down in a future episode. Yeah, yeah for today. sure. I think that um, when we do that one, we'll, we'll set it up like a... Uh, ringside fight and we'll just play little snippets of it and just like oh react you know see how that goes (laughs) i hate listening to that episode i was getting so shirty you edited the hell out of that because there was a lot more of me just going get (laughs) (laughs) you mean i can't move this is bullshit can i see him or not there was a lot okay there was a lot of times when the the audio track spiked and every time there was a spike i just had to cut it out but um back to your question happy about it Back to your question regarding uh, Drew and Junus. So you know, I, I see Junus as two kinds of people, and I, I really hope it's the former because, you know, the former's nicer. It just goes to show that there is someone out there for everybody. If you're listening to this and you're feeling lonely, don't give up. There's somebody out there. Just got to put, your, put yourself out there and you might find that person. Yeah, you might find them cooking rabbit in a cave. <laughs> oh, there was sparks flying. There was sparks yeah, flying. Yeah. Well, the second part, uh, the latter is that she's trying to take advantage of a person. Drew, Drew outwardly looks like a person that could easily be taken advantage of, um, especially if you're a master manipulator. You know, uh, before that point, Drew was very much a person who was trying to find that kind of person, actually, and he would do it in a clingy way. The first time Key meets Drew, he's trying to touch me. Yes. He's, I mean, he's trying to touch Key. Yeah, but Drew's <laughs> just a toucher. His love language is touch. He, it is, he's looking it is. for affection. He's looking... He's looking for it. And it, it makes me wonder if he kind of does know that he is the ugliest man in the world, but he's in complete denial. Yeah. No, that's the whole premise, mate. Well, no, the premise is the opposite. Oh, yeah. yeah that's he's right. the most attractive he man the in the world. Attractive. Because his mum told him. And, you know, Shavi and Just We are enablers. 
We just let him think that Absolutely. it's easier. Absolutely. You are the best big brothers ever. Best you know, support structure ever. I don't, I don't think you give him that much support. Maybe once in the blue moon. It, Fuck you, man. Here we are. Getting to <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing I want to talk about is your dice rolls, Lullaby, because they're, they're one of two things. <clears throat> Get a comment, Carl. Fuck his dice rolls. <laughs> they're either 20s or they are the ones. exact opposite of that, which is ones. Sometimes you get a little speckling of things in between, but you're a very successful fail kind of guy. And that kind of played into Key's character a lot as well. I feel like when he did fail, one of the things that you'd say around the table was embrace failure, guys. Yeah. <laughs> embrace failure. Yeah. yeah. Very much. It's, it's like uh, how Bruce Lee said, um, be like water, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, water either crashes or, or it's either still. So that's how those rolls are kind of like. Um, rolling a rolling a nat twenty or rolling a nat one. Yeah, and usually they happen just after the the other. So in this particular episode, you rolled a one when everybody else was stealthing, which might I say for the crown killers is fucked. I hate doing stealth checks with you guys because nothing ever sits below a thirty, except for this time when Lullaby rolled a one. Uh, when you guys were sneaking through to find the passageway to get into the dawning tide, then Argrim was leading you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. moved the bushes aside. Lullaby was licking his lips because of the rabbit that he just consumed, taking two helpings from these starving survivors. He was. He was. Well, I'm saying Lullaby because Lullaby's here. No, no, because no, Lullaby was a dickhead. I remember that role, like, specifically. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. can continue, sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll drop the bombshell at the end. So I guess when, you, when you're talking about dice rolls, you've got to look at, like, the fact that when that one hit, you ca- I can't just ignore a one. No, you can't. So you had to be intercepted, and you were. Um, and in that moment, it was sort of like, for me, I was thinking, what will they do? Because this guy's going to get himself in trouble. Will they run or will they stay and defend this dude? And you guys chose to run. Yeah. And then you turned Agram into John fucking Wick. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he was teaching up. you a lesson. <laughs> that was no, also no, no. <laughs> a dice roll, by the way. Sorry. I did not choose to do that. That was a dice roll. Also, can I just say, Lullaby had fucking inspiration when he rolled that one and he refused Flat out fucking refused to use it and got Agram shot. This is true. And um, I'd love to weigh in on that if Kyle is finished. Look, okay, look, all right. So uh, a lot of editing, a lot of Kyle's um, uh, audio falls on the cutting room floor. Let's say that. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, uh, to your credit though, Kyle, after you've listened to an episode, you never message me and say, hey, what happened to this bit except for the first time with the clapping? Yeah, no, I was real annoyed about the clapping. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear this. That's, that's we'll a tale that for, another for another time. That's a tale for another taproom. So what, 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 um, what Kyle is alluding to is when we were doing that and I rolled the nat one and then we all had a bit of a laugh and everything like that. And then Kyle pointed out, you have inspiration, use it. And I thought about it. But here's the thing. I'm all about management resources when it comes to video games and not my, not my fridge and pantry. Resource management could go to hell. Yeah. But, but when it comes to games, I'm thinking to myself, I like inspiration for combat or death saves. And if I just use this on an inconsequential sort of narrative, and yes, you know, Argrim is very important. Our preservation is even more important. So I'm putting my stock into putting using saving inspiration for later, which turned out to be very handy. No, but it didn't. It did. It did. It did. And um, but here's the thing: I also enjoy 
a bit of spice in the, in narrative. My favorite thing about D and D, which is also my my greatest weakness in my opinion, is um, interaction and role playing outside of combat. Um, I just wish I was just better at it. But in my opinion, I'm not. But I'd like to see if I can get better. I actually excel in combat, which is actually my least favorite thing to listen to when it comes to D and D podcasts. Um, and I'm sure everyone's got their own their own opinions, but D and D combat can be a little bit, um, clunky. you know, a bit clunky, mm. um, and also uncreative, um, which I'd love to talk about as well when we um, have our um, fight episode chat. But um, yeah, so I'm all about, as um, Aaron said, you know, embrace failure. I feel like that's a really big thing with D and D because not everything goes to plan and it's not supposed to, it doesn't have to. That's why there's such a variable of a dice roll on the D20 all the way from one to 20. You know, um, if you write a, um, if you roll a one, just bite the bullet and continue on with it. You don't have to throw your inspiration at every second that uh, a bad thing happens in your corner. Like Frodo didn't use his little light thing, which I thought was a potion when I was watching the first movie. I thought it was a potion. Went, as soon as he comes into into some dangerous waters, I would have thought to myself, just drink the damn potion. He didn't. He didn't use it until the third movie. And that's when I found out it's a light. I'm like, oh, that's boring. But yeah, I'm, I'm all about saving it for the right moment. And you may forget, but because Aaron cuts a lot of stuff out, he cuts out a lot of the times when we actually do use our inspiration, if I'm not mistaken. Only a few times he keeps it in. Most of the time he takes it out. And I'm, trying, I use, I'm just trying to remember what you use the inspiration for. From the rafters. We attacked from the rafters and I rolled a nat one. He did. And then I used my Moments inspiration. Later. And then, and then mo like literally you got inspiration from that kill. No, no, no I used you, my inspiration. You got inspiration from that kill. Yeah. Because the way that you killed that Drake was you dropped on him with your short sword and then inserted your hand into that wound and oh, used yeah, your and then fire used spell. Yeah. yeah, my cantrip. However... So just saying, um, which is alluding into the uh, narrative of ones and twenties, which is something, um, which is pretty impressive. I rolled a nat one, used my initiative, uh, which didn't happen in the inspiration. podcast. Yeah, you're inspiration. Used inspiration, and I rolled a nat twenty. Uh, yeah, I do vaguely remember that. Now. Yeah, that also helped you guys not get caught when you guys were uh, when a couple of the people were coming up from downstairs. From yeah, there were the some clutch time. moments there. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. absolutely was. Um, talking back about heists and how well you guys planned those, for me, it comes to a point where they're very hard to do on a podcast because it's purely uh, vocal. So I have to lay the, the lay of the land, you might say. You guys also have to have a really good visual of what's going on so you guys can plan properly. And that was the purpose of Agram and those guys that you saw there so I could give you guys some information before you actually went into to do what you needed to do. Um, there was also a moment there where you guys sort of weigh your pros and cons of it. You're waiting up in the rafters and then you see some bad stuff go down into the bottom and then you guys feel like you should wait it out and wait to see if they come back up. But in fact, Xavi said it perfectly. It was just like, we waited and now it's worse because the, the cleaver actually came in after that. Now, if you guys had gone down, he would have come in behind you after you would have been weakened by the two soldiers and the Drake and the other guard that was there. So, do you think it would have been worse or better to go down straight away or to wait and face him knowing what you had at your full disposal? No, it was smarter to wait. I, they're both bad choices in, you know, because that's, that's the thing about it. Like 
We have no idea what's in store for us, regardless of what we choose. If we wait, then things could get worse or they could get better. If we attack, things could get worse or could get better. I think it was a bit of a experience in that regard, like because we just rushed in with the fucking rose sphere or whatever it was, got out. I don't even know. We just ran set through the stuff alarms, set everything off, killed everything. Drew nearly died. We used, you know what I mean. But this time we were like, be like careful. Let's. You actually, yeah. Your your initial plan was to go in, um, get the trinkets that you needed, find the summon arbiter to help you get them, and then get out. And then once you met these survivors, they were really attached to the Sun Arbiter. So then your plan changed to get in, get the trinkets, save the Sun Arbiter, get out. Because it went from being a very quiet, stealthy infiltration to even you just we at the time Smash said, grab. yeah, you, you go in, you create a massive distraction, the Sun Arbiter gets away. And in that cacophony, you guys escape out the window as well. So your plan evolved as more information was given to you, which I think is the sign of a good team, basically. because. You guys know what you're good at. You guys plan things out as best that you can, but you also adapt really well to situations because there is a lot of times when teams will clarify and re-clarify. But the thing I like about the Crown Killers is you guys will make an informed decision and if it falls to shit, you guys ride with it, the consequence, and make the next decision based on what happens next. Most of the time, the, the consequences of indecision are worse than the consequences of a bad decision. If uh. If something's coming down, you know, especially if it's rolling downhill very, very quickly, if you just stand still, you're going to get hit by whatever it is. Everything. Yeah. I mean, even if you dive, you know, dive left into the, into the uh, fucking Rose of, bush, the thorn bush. Or, you know, the way of an oncoming bus. Mm. I mean, at least you're in the way. He might swerve. You may be able to make another decision that might, you, you know what I mean? There's always yeah. a a way out whereas if you just stand still you're not doing anything so you can't make any decision you know unless you can turn into a giant fucking bulldozer on command and just or summon 25 animal spirits yeah exactly or you know everybody turns into a triceratops and just stops the whatever the big thing is that's coming down but still that's a decision that you know and I think one of the things that the crown killers are really good at doing is making decisions on the fly and being unanimous in it so, well, in, except for Key, because he hates like my decisions said, on the fly. He's a wanker. <laughs> like, hates them. <laughs> I love Lullaby to death. Oh, we all do. I fucking hate Key. Like, great character for D&D, but to play with. Goes with what you were saying before about taking the good with the bad, knowing that every rose has a thorn. You have to look and see that Key is actually offering a counter perspective as well that you might actually jump on. Well, to that point, actually, that moves us on to something else. I actually inserted a few moments in here and I do these to try and bring out a, a character backstory point or to uh, highlight a different element of your character. In this episode, I gave Key two, actually in the, in the two episodes, three and four, I gave Key two sort of opportunities to sort of show an element of kindness. And the first one was with a little girl around the fire. I was like, who he told to fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was basically just, Key was key in that situation to his character uh, testament. He doesn't know what he's doing around kids, and he actually said that, and he played that pretty perfectly. But then the second time was when I made the Sun Arbiter a Loxodon, um, and that fed into your backstory as well. So I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong as well, but you were personally motivated to get these articles, um, these, these items of non-detection, so Delnat could get out of your heads. 
but then I feel like there was a bit of a personal connection with that sun arbiter after you found out that she shared a race with one of your best friends. Oh, absolutely. Like that, that was a big reveal. Um, I, w- I would say that like, um, and that's, that's the thing about key is that, um, he, he's comfortable around his familiarity around, around things. And, you know, um, if he's going to see a Loxodon, unless that Loxodon's jamming a Warhammer into his face, um, he's, he's going to think of fond memories. <laughs> I'm just thinking about a Loxodon with a Warhammer. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm not. <laughs> There's actually a magic card called yeah, Loxodon, Loxodon Warhammer. Warhammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, um, that was, that was pretty good on your, on your part actually. Um, and I actually wish I did do some more interaction um, yeah, we didn't have time. There was yeah. no time. There, there was, was no time. You guys were um in the middle of basically a, a breakout situation. You got her to come in, give you the trinkets, and then you you ordered like you gave her the escape route. After that, you literally did what just we had planned before. There was two guards rushing down. You took the aggro and you jumped out the window. See, like and that was the thing because it was such a tense moment, just post fight. And then such a tender moment for Key, you know, opening his eyes, Aloxidonian, you know, that was that was exactly what he needed. You know, a sight for sore eyes, if you will. So you seeing that Loxodonian and then speaking Loxodonian, you, you listen to it in the podcast and you're like, oh, that's so tender. And that's a testament to, you know, Aaron being awesome at what he does, but also Key really going, oh, wait, he's thrown two lobs up for me to actually show a good side of my character. Maybe I should give some backstory. And you did it fucking perfectly, man. It was, it was, I, I listened to it literally on the way over to here. I listened to that moment. And I was like, oh, that was actually really good. Yeah. yeah. I actually like that you didn't fall for the first one because I feel like it gave more depth to the second one that you yeah. sort of looked at with the Loxodon because that was more personal to you. And this was just like a general moral Sort of situation, and now that that's that's you know like because in case you haven't worked it out, like he's a person that suffers from mental illness. So anything that's kind of new or he doesn't understand, he's irritated by, or he's uh you know he's extremely uncomfortable. But regardless of how small or timid something might be, if it's alien to him and and he's uncomfortable, he's going to retract himself away. That that's Key's biggest thing is he was only ever comfortable around certain friends and it takes time for him to, to come out of that closet. Um, but as soon as he feels betrayed, he's straight back into the closet and then he puts up iron bars. Um, with, with what you were saying there as well, with Key having that sort of mental illness, I feel like he has like a survivor's complex. Like he will operate on his base needs and it sort of came out when he went in to get that food. And then he needed more food because he was hungry. So he went and he did that. But the moment that his survival is sort of in question, he'll, he will make morally ambiguous decisions, you might say, for his survival in the instance with Agram, for example. Mm, mm. I, I'm not sure what keys in a monologue was, but he saw somebody getting attacked. Perfect distraction to get away, for one. But two, you were sort of goal-orientated in that and kind of... Um, survivalist you might say um and i think that does come from a little bit of key's backstory where he has been downtrodden a lot and put in those situations of life and death a lot and um and i think that sort of played out in minor instances of, of no danger when he feels like he is so yeah 
absolutely. Like I, I work with a lot of people that have mental illnesses and, um, you know, I, I, I understand, um, the, you know, uh, the fight and flight sort of, um, response coming from your amygdala, which is something that's been, that kept our species alive for millions and millions of years. And now we're at a point where, you know, mental health is a real thing and we need to acknowledge when we feel that sort of, you know, that sympathetic division, putting us into that response. Like, you know, if someone says something to you and you have a reaction, you're like that initial thought or reaction could be like putting up the defenses, right? So um, you need to be sort of mentally strong enough to acknowledge that you don't have to succumb to the um, saying something equally back. You can just sort of laugh something off or, you know, provide a perspective. Whereas if you're, if you have gone through a tough time, like he has, he is not mentally strong to, to cope with that. So his, his, his first sense of well being is to, I'm going to fight you or I'm going to run away because I don't know how to deal with a situation. And, um, I, there are a lot of people that experience exactly the, exactly the same thing. And it really comes down to having effective communication, which is key's biggest downfall. You'll notice he probably speaks the least in multiple groups, unless he's around Felix. Um, he has zero effective communication, which if you don't have effective communication in a relationship, the relationship is not going to work. And that's exactly what happens later on with Key and Jess Wee. Yeah, which is why we kill him off. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's not like he wants to be like this. He wants to be like everyone else. Uh, the pursuit of happiness is happiness. I actually feel like his um his effort and trying comes out after we'll talk about this in other episodes, but after the fight between you two, he actually does try a little bit to open up. Yeah, we will talk about like I I really do want to talk about the big bury the hatchet moment that, you know, Key and just we had because, you know, that was that did turn it around and then you went and were a jerk and tore all of our hearts out and killed him off. But that's true. That's another tale for another tap room. That's right. Um, for the last sort of point of, of order with this one, the battle at the end, you guys um, took on the cleaver of Carilla and throughout the last, actually throughout most of the episodes of the, uh, the crown killer arcs, can we have a little bit of a talk about just swee in a leadership role? Oh, that's a, that's a Kyle thing though. That's not, not necessarily. I mean, um, with the group that we play in, right. I think we generally, I think the mustards will agree with me, both Michael and Matthew. We generally look towards somebody to sort of give us a direction, whether you put yourself in that spot or not. So I think we generally wait for you to say something first and then we go along with it. Well, thanks for explaining my situation. (laughs) <laughs> no, um, validating. Yeah, no, no. I completely, completely agree with Lullaby. Um, but what I meant by that's a Kyle thing is, um, I'm usually pretty good around random people that I've never met before, which is why Aaron put me with the Mustard Boys like by myself at first. And it's also why I was absolutely fine with you and I doing a love scene in front of two strangers. Yeah, yeah, no. And, I knew you'd and, be cool. You know, it was a little bit like, hey, dudes, like I'm Kyle. You're about to learn. Especially when you like, yeah, the way you, you walked me into that scene, I was like, oh, well, this Still is the greatest happening. practical joke that I'll ever play in my life. Dude, like, and I, I think that's just a, somewhat the way I 
handle myself is you listen to everybody, of course. Make your, uh, I want to say, say judgments. Like, yes, you are judging up people that you've never met before. It's subconscious. Like, everybody does it. Lullaby would know in his academia that he's doing at the moment on the brain. I think it also falls into a little bit of your, like the backstory that you gave to me in terms of him being like a special operative, him leading teams, for example, and then yeah. being exiled. He yeah. kind of had to rely on himself a lot. And that sort of develops a lot of traits in that kind yeah. of regard as well. And I think, I think the, you sort of gave us a backstory that we had been working together for a little while. So we definitely trusted each other. And I think that allowed us to very quickly open up to each, like our characters, just we, um, you know, Drew and Shavi especially. We were able to open up to each other very, very quickly. And we got on the same page very, very quickly. And, you know, we do our back work as well, like not meta style, but, you, you know, we talk with you. We, we make a plan as to what we can do. We run it past you, whether or not we can role play this. Well, to, to that point, in the earlier episodes where you guys start to talk about how Shavi and yourself met, that was completely fabricated by you two. Like, oh, yeah, that, that wasn't yeah. me thing. You guys, I, I gave you the, the, you guys have been working together as a team for a mutual purpose, how you guys have come together, any backstory that you have, that's for you to create. Yeah. And you guys decided that, you know, just we had some personal beef, was looking for a particular halfling for a personal vendetta, thought it was him, actually ended up being fucking sick friends. Yeah. So yeah, that was better than Legos. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, we had a side quest at the start of this, and that was called phrasing. Can anybody guess what anybody's phrases were? I won't guess because I know what yours Lullaby, were. One of Lullaby's was be like water, that bullshit Bruce Lee face. Like, you lock that in? Oh, I hate it when he does that fucking straight face, do you? Because you don't know. He is. He is. I'm going to lock it in. It's yeah. not a, it's not one at all. <sighs> no, <Nah>, it's not. <laughs> you know what mine was? This is better than Legos. <laughs> it was yeah. nice. Yeah. But also every rose has rose has its thorn when you were talking about the good and the bad. That was mine as well. I thought that may have been one, but I thought it may have been a red herring as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh what what are yours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rolling down the hill. I don't know. Got no idea. No idea. Mine was sight for sore eyes and bury the hatchet. I thought it was sight for sore eyes because you went ding. Yeah, but red herring, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Lollivies was bite the bullet and once in a blue moon. Yeah, see, it's hard because he, he only said them once. Mm. You know? Actually, I don't think he said once in a blue moon, did you? I did. Yeah, did he did. I, mm, he did. I said it to him when he was talking about support for Drew. And he yeah, went he silent. Did. He went silent. And I looked at him It too. went to his yeah. emotional center. Yeah. He's like, fuck yeah. off. I'm like, yes, it works. about emotional center. Guys, so <laughs> fuck off with your brain chemistry talk, you <laughs> fucking... We'll get you back for brain talks another time, Lullaby. But uh, thank you two for joining me on this episode of Tales of Taproom, playing Phrasing with me and talking about the last, or oh, well, episode three and four of season two. Just really quickly before we leave, I got beef with you two. You, like, there was one point in the episode you were talking about drakes and drew was like oh what do they and you said like oh just like the ones from star wars what fucking drakes in star wars are you talking about the